Awesome. All right. So um, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And tonight I'm going to talk about the chapter more about alcoholism. And I think, you know, um, the chapter really, it could be called um, more about how we're crazy, you know, on, or even better, um, more about why we need a higher power. And especially, you know, the, the order of the chapters in the, in the big book, um, this chapter comes right before we agnostics. And so I think it's, it's purpose of this chapter is to make it abundantly clear that human power is not going to be sufficient. If you have alcoholism, if you have true compulsive over, you know, this, this compulsive overeating disease, um, you're going to need a spiritual solution. And that's really what this chapter is going to outline. So, you know, the chapter is going to go through, kind of give you like a preview. It's going to go through story after story. And in each story, what's happening is that the doors that we thought might be the way out, those doors get closed and locked, right? They like one by one, they get closed, they get locked. So at the end of the chapter, we are left with only one door. There's only one door, and that one is do I. So, all right, let's jump in on page 30. The first paragraph tells us what our great obsession is. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking, and in my case, my eating, is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. So one of our biggest problems is that we don't think we have a problem. That's my biggest problem is I don't really think I have a problem. And in fact, I was persistent about keeping up the illusion. You know, despite the difficulties, we continue to live trying to prove a false idea, you know, and the false idea is that I can control this. Um, in page 30, the second paragraph says that um, it tells us what the first step to getting well is. And here it is. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. And, you know, we have to know this. We have to absolutely know this. We have to admit this. It's a diagnosis that has to come from within, um, which is why we don't try to convince anyone else that they have a problem. Like that's never our job is to convince another person that they have a problem. Um, we, we say we let the disease do the convincing. The disease is the great persuader. It's what informs the sufferer, that there's a problem. Um, and the third paragraph tells us some characteristics of the disease. And here it is, it's permanent and it's progressive. And it says, no real alcoholic ever recovers control, that we are in the grip of a progressive illness. It gets worse, never better, right? And so 
here's my experiences about the getting worse, never better, the progression of this. For me, um, my binges got longer. They lasted longer. They required more food, had to consume more. They were happening more frequently, right? So the binge is getting longer. I need to eat more during the binge and it's happening more often. And the time in between the binge, those periods of time, they got shorter and shorter and they got harder to tolerate. My discomfort of being human grew exponentially. I, it was harder and harder to tolerate just living. And, you know, for me, I think back, there was a time that I could binge on the weekends. I was a weekend binge eater for a while in my life. Um, and especially, you know, I think back to my days, I always think back to like my slumber party days, like my middle school slumber party days with my girlfriends when, um, they would all binge. We would all binge together. I had a group of girlfriends and we would, we called them pig out parties. That was like the purpose of the party. We were going to pig out together. And, you know, but I began to eat that way more than just on those Friday nights. Like they would eat that way on Friday night and, um, and everybody would pass out, you know, their bellies would hurt. They'd be complaining. They ate so much. Saturday morning, nobody could eat breakfast. They were all like sick to their stomachs, but not me. I was eating through the night and I would go home from these parties and I would still be eating. And I, you know, and really what I remember is I began to eat that way on more than just those Friday nights. Like that was so much fun to eat in an out of control manner that I wanted to do that more often. And, you know, and what it is, is, um, you know, we fit the binging initially into our lives. And then we try to fit our lives around the binges. And then for me, my life was only the binge. That was my life. What, when the time I wasn't binging, it didn't, it wasn't even like I was living in those in-between moments. Um, and I would say that's what it means to be, you know, when they talk about a fatal progression, some of us, some of us don't die, but we sure feel like we have. We walk around feeling like we're not really living. You know, one of my favorite things about having recovery is, and I say this to Francis, is you're having a full living experience now. Welcome to life, you know, um, because in the grip of my disease, I did not have a full living experience. Um, I had a full eating experience and life was kind of given small little bits in between. Um, page 31, the second paragraph begins to list the methods. Here we go, right? Methods. Methods are what we use to manage and control the disease. And they're also they're often what we use to support the delusional thinking that we can control this. You know, if you have enough methods, you start thinking you can control this thing. And, um, and what I would do is I would rotate the methods around. So always thinking I was controlling it, I was just choosing a new tool, a new weapon to control this problem. Um, and, you know, most of the methods that, mo you know, that we use are diets, they're weight loss and, weight control plans and gym memberships and 
insane exercise regimes. And I always think it's a really good idea to list your own, you know, write down all those things you've done. And I love sometimes listening to other people's lists because what amazes me is how creative we are <laughs> and how many we've all tried, you know, and, um, and when I look at mine, I think, my God, I have tried so many different things and I've retried them over and over and over again. And what that really tells me is that lack of desire was never my dilemma. You know, um, I, I think like sometimes I would get this feeling like I don't care. Like I remembered when I would reach a certain point, I would say, I don't even care. But I think it was just too painful to care. You know, I did care. Otherwise I never would have done all the things I did. Um, you know, and and so lack of desire was not my real dilemma, nor was lack of information. You know, I had a lot of good information. I wanted very much to stop. I knew precisely from a young age what foods were problematic. I knew it as a little girl, what things I couldn't seem to control. Um, and all of the methods that I've used in my life were extremely effective as long as I followed them. Every method worked that I've tried, even the crazy ones for the most part. You know, here's the thing about diets, they work. Actually, they work if your problem is you need to lose weight. Every single diet works until the day they no longer work and then they never work quite as well again. And that has been my experience. The first time out with a diet, it worked like a charm. You know, I would lose weight on it. I would feel good. Everything seems great. Um, but then I would sort of find my way back into the food. And I think about it like this. Um, you know, for me, a diet is like trying to fence a dog in a yard when there's a hole in the fence. And once the dog knows the way out of the fence, you can keep trying to put that dog back in the same old yard with the same old fence, but it's not going to work. And for me, that's what a diet is. I find the escape hatch. Um, bottom of page 31 to the top. It gives us a way to diagnose ourselves, um, to diagnose the illness. Can you control your eating? Can you eat the foods that are problematic foods in moderation? Can you do it consistently, right? With the same results over and over again? Because sometimes people say, I don't know that that food is a problem because sometimes I eat it and I'm fine. Except you can't reasonably predict when you're going to be fine and when you're not. And that's a problem, right? That's a problem. And I would say, you know, by the time we get here to the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous or to a meeting like this, we know the answer. That, that answer has become clear. Most of us come in because the experiment of doing this on our own was a disaster. You know, if I could have, I would have. I would have found other ways to spend my time if I could have, right? Um, the chapter then is going to give us four examples 
to help us determine some things and to bring to life some important concepts. And so the four examples that we're gonna get um, is one, the man of 30, Two, we're going to have a, you know, an introduction. We're going to get some information about Jim. Three, we're going to hear about a crazy jaywalker. And four, Fred. Four, Fred. Um, and on the bottom of page 32, here's the man of 30. And this is, to me, an excellent example of a characteristic of the disease, right? Because we're going to find out some of the characteristics of what it means to have this. And here's one, patient. This disease is patient. The disease, for this man of 30, he stopped drinking 25 years. So this disease was patiently lying in wait for 25 years. And I think, you know, I couldn't make it to Friday sometimes, right? But, um, and yet other times I could because this disease is patient. So, it says here that he stopped drinking for 25 years. In fact, he remained bone dry, it says. So clearly he had exceptional willpower and self-discipline. And what's important to point out in this story as well, you know, as the other ones that we're gonna discuss, is that this man of 30 did not accidentally trigger an allergy. This is talking about someone who's bone dry. You know, in our case, entirely abstinent, 100% rigorously abstinent, did not trigger the allergy. He wasn't being careless about what he was consuming. In fact, it's very clear he was bone dry. And that's to say in our terms, he was entirely abstinent. And, and for 25 years. So we know that entire abstinence although it's important, it's not insurance and it's not protection. That does not insure anybody from a relapse and it doesn't protect anybody. Nor are years of self-discipline, right? We cannot make up our own minds and rely on our minds to stay made up. And if we're addicted like this, it means we cannot regulate and we cannot control. And, you know, I have my own experience of trying to, of stopping for a period of time um, that this always reminds me of. I had stopped um, eating compulsively. I'd stopped eating sugar and a whole host of other alcoholic foods. I did it for almost five years. And, um, but I had not worked the steps. I had a lot of good information about the allergy of the body. It made perfect sense to me. And I forged ahead with that plan and I got all the things that I wanted. Like this man of 30, I, you know, I got the fruits of abstinence. And then, um, but on my honeymoon, I picked up just like this guy. I just thought I reached a point where I should be able to have what I wanted to have. And, you know, um, he says here, then gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop, stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal and every attempt failed. And that was my experience too, that um, I tried to gather all my forces and I could not stop on my own human power. The disease had progressed. That time that I had spent abstinent, 
my disease had actually grown in strength so that I could not put it down on that Monday when I was certain I was going to be able to put it down. I just couldn't. And neither could I the following Monday. And I couldn't do it the next Monday. And I spent years like that, unable to put it down when I really, really wanted to. Every attempt failed on my part. So what's the lesson here? Because there's a lesson. If we are planning to stop drinking, stop eating compulsively, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. So although we say one day at a time, we don't mean that I only have to be abstinent one day and I don't have to be abstinent the next day. What it means when I hear one day at a time, it means that we live in freedom each day, only taking on the day that we're living. But I don't have any illusions. I have no mistaken ideas that tomorrow I won't have the same severe food problem. I don't believe that I've outgrown it. You know, no matter how far I've come in my recovery, no matter what kind of a spiritual awakening I've had, I believe that my allergy to those foods are just as severe, if not worse, right? Because if it's progressing, then it's progressing. Then it was the day that I came in. It's probably worse. Um, and so there can be no lurking notion that someday I'm going to be immune to it. I believe I will never be immune to it. Page 34, the middle of the first paragraph says, if you're questioning if you've entered this dangerous area, what area is that that they're talking about? The area where you are unable to quit on your own willpower. See, lots of people can initially quit on their own willpower. And then you enter a dangerous area where you can't quit on your own willpower. It says here, if you're questioning it, try leaving it alone for a year. Try putting it down on your own without doing anything else. And this is another way that we can determine if we are in fact powerless. We find this out not so much when we're having fun and we don't want to stop, but we find this out when we want to stop and find that we can. And I knew I was powerless when I tried to exert all my willpower and I couldn't do it. I say for me, you know, on that honeymoon, or anytime I took a vacation and I was out there eating, I didn't know I was powerless on that vacation because I didn't want to stop. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to eat the way I was eating. When I realized I was powerless was when I came home on that Monday and I went to the grocery store and I bought all those vegetables and they rotted in the fridge. And I did it again and again, right? That's when I knew I was powerless, when my car felt like it was had a magnet and just pulled me right through McDonald's against my will. That's when I knew I was powerless. Um, you know, from this point on, the chapter more about alcoholism is going to try us help to help us determine if we can quit on our own or if, in fact, we're going to have to rely on something greater than human power. And it's going to do this you know, by describing, here it is on page 25, the top of the 35, page 35 on the top, the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. 
where obviously this is the crux of the problem. So the crux of the problem, right, is the most important part. What's the biggest part of our problem? It's the mental state. It's our thinking. That's the biggest problem we have. And it's going to do this. It's going to really get into this by giving us three more examples here. Jim, right? We're going to talk about Jim. We're going to talk about that jaywalker. I'm going to talk about that. So Jim, page 35, he's smart. He's likable. He has a beautiful family, right? He inherited a business. And yet his drinking was destroying it all. He was motivated to stop, right? Because he had all these good things that were turning to crap. And he was told about alcoholism and he made a start, meaning he started on the road to recovery. And, you know, what happened was his life started getting better again. And that happens to people, right? They start getting better. But here's the important part. He failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And if there's any point that must be driven home is that we must have a spiritual life and it's got to continue to grow. Like that's what it tells us here. Spiritual life is not optional. It's a necessity. In fact, this is, you know, this is a step one um, chapter. This is like a step one leading into step two chapter. And so... Step one, part of my step one experience is that not just I can't eat, I can't eat, I can't eat, but I must have a spiritual life. I must have a spiritual experience. I say for me, my step one understanding tells me that I'm someone who's got to have a miracle. I must have a miracle of healing. Um, so, you know, if you remember that this disease is permanent and it's progressive, so my solution, you know, which we've been told in the chapter that came before this one is a spiritual solution because it's, you know, there's a solution. We find out it's a spiritual solution um, is my spiritual life has to grow as well. If the disease is progressing, my spiritual life must, must make greater progress than just my addiction, right? Um, and I want to drill home the point that when Jim picked up, I think this is a really something, um, speaks a lot to me. He wasn't dropped and he wasn't cast aside, you know, and, and, and the reason he picked up was not because he accidentally triggered the allergy. It wasn't because milk was really an allergic food for him. And it wasn't because he couldn't have a sandwich. That wasn't it. You know, he didn't trigger an allergy. What he picked up, he was sober. He picked up because he was not safe and protected. He was not under the care and protection of a creator, right? Because he stepped out of that care and protection. He stepped away from it. In the bottom of page 35, it says, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, carefully reviewing what had happened. 
So they worked with him, meaning he was working too, right? It's, you know, as someone who sponsors, right? And, and I'm, I'm not unique in having this experience. Um, sponsees pick up, you know, they just do this disease is progressive. And, and it takes a long time for some people to reach a real step one or to remain in complete relationship with their step one understanding and people pick up, right? Um, it's not part of the solution. It's not part of the treatment to pick up, but it is part of the disease. It's part of the fatal progression. And so it sucks <laughs> when sponsees pick up. It is hard. It's not fun. You begin to feel yourself like you're not doing a good job. And it would be easy to dismiss those people, to say, well, you don't want it bad enough, or, you know, or go get another voice, go listen to another voice. Now, sometimes getting another voice is a great idea, but sometimes it really has nothing to do with another voice. It's failure to follow directions. Sometimes that's really it. And it doesn't matter who the voice is. It's, you know, it's not listening to the voice that was giving you some clear direction. Um, you know, and so what do they do when he picked up half a dozen times in rapid succession? Think about it. You're working with a sponsee and they pick up six times, maybe within the first couple of, you know, couple of weeks, they're, they're picking up, they're picking up, they're picking up. And what do they do? They worked with him each time, asking him to tell exactly what happen. So when someone picks up, when a sponsor picks up or when anybody picks up and they call and they're looking for some feedback and they want, you know, they want to talk to you. Um, I press them for the details, you know, um, don't just let people say, well, I ate off plan again, or, you know, I binged again, or, well, you know, I fell into the food again. That's kind of a, that's kind of like people want to pass. They don't really want to get in there. The sponsee doesn't. And I have to tell you the truth. As a sponsor, I often don't either. But I think we're supposed to. That's the direction here that I have. You know, and we're actually supposed to press them for details. And why? Why are we supposed to press people for details? Because we're trying to help them discover where they fell off track, right? Where they stepped out of this protection that were promised. Um, so I'd say here, let's do it with Jim. Like that's perfect opportunity for us to do it, do it with him. Well, he had words with his boss. That's what his story tells. He had words with his boss, meaning uh, he had a resentment, right? He he owned this business once, let's think about it. And now he's working for some other guy. That's gotta suck. And I'm sure it wasn't just like, well, I had a few words with my boss. Like I would imagine he felt pretty heated. I've had words with my boss. I felt pretty heated afterwards with my boss, It right? So he had a resentment. And what does he do? He goes to a bar to get lunch and a customer. He was already in trouble at that point. He needed to do anything, anything else in the world other 
than to go into a bar. You know, our text tells us that we can go anywhere, that anyone else can go, provided we're in fit spiritual condition. And we also know we have a way of getting spiritually fit. It's through working these steps, through work and self-sacrifice. If he wasn't through the steps yet, and he wasn't feeling spiritually fit, he had no business being in a bar. To me, I think about it like this. I would have had a fight with my boss, words with my boss, and I decided to go sit in a bakery and do my work in a bakery for the day. What do you think's going to happen? Right? What do you think's going to happen? And, and, you know, and here's where it gets clear that Jim has an alcoholic mind, which um, in the middle of page 36, it says, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt on a full stomach. So I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. And I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but I felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey in a full stomach. And I think back, I have had moments where I am in a spot and I'm like, mm, I am not being any too smart. Like I actually need to be fully too smart, right? Not being any too smart. Um, here he was. Um, and so here's a clear example of foolish thinking. And we cannot rely on our thinking because we lie to ourselves and we believe it, right? He lied to himself and it sounded plausible to him, right? Um, the bottom of page 36 to the top of page 37, it says, he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic. The reasons for drinking, for not drinking, were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. You know, and the next couple of sentences I think are really powerful because it helps define insanity for us. And I remember I used to hate when people would say, you know, my life, I've been restored to sanity because then that meant by definition that I had been insane. I didn't really like being told that I was insane, but we've got a pretty workable definition here. If you struggle with the, with the concept that you're suffering from insanity, well, here it is. It says, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. What's plain insanity? A lack of proportion of the ability to think straight. How can that be called anything else, right? Lacking proportion. And so insanity is lacking proportion. And I describe it like this. If you lack proportion, it means you minimize the importance of certain things and you make other things more important than they should be. You know, and, um, and how have I done that? I think, you know, here's a very seemingly innocuous way, right? If I believe that I have a deadly allergy, and I do believe I have a deadly allergy, then if I lack proportion, I will wing it and assume that my food is free from those alcoholic ingredients because I don't want to be uncomfortable in front of a hostess and ask details about what's in that 
sauce, right? Or I don't want to, you know, I've been in situations, right, where I'm in a restaurant and I ask for the salad with no dressing because I know I can't have it. And comes and it's got the dressing on it. If I lack proportion, I say, well, I don't want to send it back because everyone's going to, you know, one of the people I'm with going to think of me. Or it's going to tie up everybody else's meal. That's lacking proportion. Because I'm placing my very life below the importance of how it looks to other people and the possibility of conveniencing, inconveniencing other people. And I'd say, if you're struggling with this concept, think for one moment, this is the example I always give, but I'm a teacher, I teach second grade. I can tell you exactly all the kids who have a peanut allergy in my class. Their parents lack no proportion. They do not care about offending me. They don't care about offending any other parent. They don't care about inconveniencing anybody because they value their life of their child and they don't care, right? Do I show myself the same love, the same high regard as those parents do for those children? And if I don't, then I lack proportion, right? Then I lack proportion. Um, okay, so middle of page 37, it says here, describe how consequences and sound reasoning are not able to help us. And so here it is, it says, we've sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences. There was always this curious mental phenomenon that parallel alongside with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. So I kind of, I love visualization, but I love to sort of picture things. And I picture this, it's like a race, right? There's two, two runners in this race. One is sound reasoning and the other one is insane idea. And they're running neck and neck, right? Um, by the way, sound reasoning never wins. It's always going to lose if if um if I'm the uh if it's my power that's running this race for it um they run neck and neck whole way it looks like neck and neck and then when propelled on my own human power I am no match for the insane idea it always wins the race it's a patient adversary. You know, I say it can run the marathon. Insane ideas can run for 25 years. Remember that man of 30? An insane idea ran quietly for 25 years. It can wait, right? Now on page 38, the jaywalker, what does this teach us? Because I read this story and I'm like, okay, this is, this is so weird. Like, what does this have anything to do with me and my eating and and what does it teach me well it says here you would expect him if he were normal to cut it out okay i would say people would say the same thing to me you're if, if she were normal she would cut this out she would take a good look at herself in the mirror she would see that none of her clothes are fitting she would know that you know she was suffering from morbid obesity 
her blood pressure was really high and crazy. Um, cut it out, cut it out, right? Okay, what can this teach us? We're not normal. We can't cut it out. We also learned that, you know, from his story, promises don't work, nor does being ridiculed. Normal people can generally make promises and keep them. You know, if you compare this in the doctor's opinion, it talks about, there's a part that it talks about recovered people, that their word is reliable, that you can rely on anything they say. Reliable people, you know, can keep their word, but not so people who are in the clutches of an illness, not when you're in the grip of this disease. Because I made lots of sweet promises that I could not keep, just couldn't keep them. I made promises to myself and I was unable to live in agreement with my wife. Page 39, the actual or potential alcoholic with hardly an exception will be unable to stop drinking, on my case, stop eating on the basis of self-knowledge. And we're gonna read about Fred to illustrate this point. Fred is living a beautiful life, happy home, great marriage, promising kids, successful in business and well-liked. So, you know, you don't have to be living a visible mess. And sometimes people think that, well, maybe I didn't reach my bottom because everything didn't fall apart, right? And I would say dot, 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 yet, right? Everything didn't go to crap yet. And here's Fred, right? He's got all this incredible success. Um, you can present quite well and you can have no other notable problems, but Fred wound up in the hospital and although he was embarrassed by what had happened to him, he didn't even admit what the real problem was at all. In fact, he said he was there to rest his nerves. I mean, he was in total denial. Um, he was depressed about his drinking, and so he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. He didn't believe he was an alcoholic. He had no step one, no step one. He did not, certainly didn't have a step two for sure. He didn't accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. He really didn't think he had much of a problem that he needed a spiritual remedy for. Top of page 40, it says he was positive that his humiliating experience plus the knowledge he acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix this. Well, we know that was a failure for him, right? And we are also told that everything went great with Fred. He exercised willpower and he thought he could stay on guard. Willpower, you know, news alert, if you have this, Willpower is an unreliable power source for us. You know, I've had excellent willpower in other areas of my life. Tremendous willpower. Willpower does not work where this problem exists. You know, I would say there were times that I was able to call upon my willpower with my compulsive eating. Um, and I felt like I had tremendous willpower at times, like unbelievable willpower. But here's the thing with willpower is it has 
an unpredictable expiration date. All of a sudden, it's just not available. You know, um, I would say it's like this. It's like a carton of milk in your refrigerator. Um, and it's got an expiration date stamped on top, but you can't see it. You know, you don't see it until you go and pour yourself a glass and it's rotten. It's just, you can't have it. And and so that's my experience with willpower. When I needed it the most, it was nowhere to be found. It just was gone. And, you know, also this idea about staying on guard. Um, you know, who's the guard? <laughs> I'm the guard. I don't have the qualifications to guard myself. It's like putting the wolf in charge of the picnic basket. I don't have the qualifications to guard myself, to keep myself safe. You know, it's like locking the door, but I've locked the enemy inside the room, right? Um, middle of page 41, Fred is describing that experience of crossing the threshold into the dining room. And he thinks that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. You know, I've had that thought, this would be really nice to have whatever. I could never follow it up with the thought of, followed by 10 months of uncontrolled eating, followed by wanting to kill myself. Like I could never finish that statement through. I always thought it would be nice to have, right, a couple. And it, you know, and, and his particular story is so similar to the story told in the chapter, A Vision for You, where Bill, Bill has a similar thought, you know? Um, and he thinks like maybe he could handle, you know, maybe he'll have a glass of ginger ale. And then he's like, mm, maybe I can handle, I don't know, say three drinks, no more. But instead, what did Bill do? He recoiled, right? He recoiled and he made a call looking for someone he could help. But Fred did not. And interestingly enough, Fred had had an amazing day, a great day. And Bill had had the worst days of his life. And he recoiled. So it also tells me that my, my circumstances don't necessarily inform whether or not I eat really seems to be unrelated. What seems to have the greatest predictor is my, is my um, spiritual, you know, my, my spiritual strength. And so Bill, you know, had a business deal go south, did not drink. And Fred, whose business went off well, did drink, right? Um, and it says again, not only had I been off guard, I'd made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. That's part of the insanity. We truly cannot protect ourselves from danger because the things that are dangerous to us seem harmless. That's usually the way that the disease gets its toe back in the door. It comes in through a way that seems harmless. It's rarely my experience of knowing people who have had relapses and picked up, it doesn't come in on a cupcake. It doesn't come in on a chocolate bar. It comes in sloppy measuring. It comes in as making changes here and there. It comes in as like, 
could eat this, you know, never mind that it's not mealtime, but it's not really an alcoholic food for me, right? It's not according to my food plan, but those are the ways that I've seen it seemingly harmless. Um, on the top of page 42, it's repeated again. Willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. And, you know, at this, Fred is crushed, right? Now, when the two members come to see him in the hospital, they're smiling. Like, why? Why are they smiling? <laughs> you know, they're not sadistic, right? They're, they're there to help. Um, but we learn right at the beginning of the chapter that we have to fully concede before anything can be done to help us. And so, um, you know, I think they're smiling because they see that he's conceded. And what a great relief it is when you work with someone who has admitted defeat, who knows that they're done. Um, I love how we're being shown exactly how we can carry this message. Like even in more about alcoholism, we're being informed as future sponsors or present day sponsors, how are you gonna do this? And they asked him, it's a great question to ask someone, if he thought himself alcoholic, he asked someone, do you believe that you have this problem? Do you believe that you're a real compulsive overeater? And are you licked? When he said yes, here's the thing. They didn't start cheering him up, right? Don't start cheering people up and offer them hope. In fact, they told the truth that this was a hopeless condition and talked about their own sufferings. They told their stories. And once Fred admitted that he couldn't do it on his own, then they outlined the spiritual answer. We have to know that we're all out of options before truly being ready to accept the spiritual solution. Our solution requires throwing some lifelong concepts out the window. And what this makes me think of is how my set of directions provides me with a new code and a new life structure and a new purpose. And it's not easy to adapt a whole new set of guiding principles unless, here's the truth, unless you're convinced that yours has been leading you to ruin. That's what convinces people. Bottom of page 42 to the top of 43, here's one of my favorite promises. Spiritual principles would solve all my problems. All of them. That the spiritual principles, the principles outlined in this program of action can solve every single one of my life problems. Every one of them. I love that. We have a one-size-fits-all solution to life's problems. You know, I've since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I've lived before. My old manner was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange it for the best moment, the best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back even if I could. And that's his experience and that's mine as well. Every single problem that I've experienced today can be solved through spiritual course of action the steps are the pathway to God. You know, um, bottom of page 43, 
once more the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher And so it, what's important about that, that the chapter ends that way, is the chapter closes and locks all the other doors that get promised in the beginning. And that it ends, the chapter ends with only one door available to me, you know? And that only thing that can save me is an act of providence, is a miracle of God's healing power. That is it. Um, and good news for us is that miracle of healing power is what is outlined in the rest of the steps. Um, and with that, I will... Yes.